This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Political Science's Postscript, in which Lily Gorin and I ask scholars to reflect on contemporary issues in their area of expertise. Today, we're really excited to talk about the impeachment proceedings in the U.S. Senate and beyond with Dr. Christopher Galdieri, Associate Professor and Chair at St. Anselm College. Lily interviewed Chris on his latest book, Stranger in a Strange State, The Politics of Carpetbagging from RFK to Scott Brown from SUNY Press 2019. And we'll have a link on our show notes to that interview. Chris published Donald Trump and New Hampshire Politics with Palgrave in 2019. And he's been doing interviews for CBC, AP Radio and others. Well, welcome back to the New Books Network, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We're also thrilled to welcome Dr. Jonathan Bernstein, familiar to many as the Bloomberg opinion columnist covering politics and policy, also during Bloomberg, also do, covering Bloomberg TV and radio. If you've not seen Jonathan's column, you're missing out on a well-written, insightful political commentary and also gracious sharing as Jonathan lists excellent articles from a variety of sources at the end of his posts. He taught political science at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and DePaul University, and some of you will remember his A Plain blog about politics. His most recent book is The Making of the Presidential Candidates, published by Roman and Littlefield in 2020, and I'm so happy to welcome him to Postscript. Great to be here. Uh, Chris and Jonathan, let's start with your impressions of this week of impeachment proceedings in the Senate. Uh, Tell us what your takeaways are and uh, what you're thinking this, how these proceedings matter, not just for the moment for, but for how we'll be thinking about the presidency going forward. Jonathan, you want to start us off? Uh, Sure. Um, You know, the the amazing thing about, well, let me put it this way. The central issue right now in American politics is the Republican Party and the dysfunction and the turn against democracy of the Republican Party. And, you know, the lack of interest in appealing beyond their strongest supporters of the Republican Party. And right before doing this, I was watching the president's lawyers put on their presentation, and there was no interest whatsoever in reaching out to anybody except for the strongest supporters of the Republican Party. And it it really sort of epitomized exactly where they are right now. And not just that they are not interested in talking to over half of the country, but that they, you know, are 
interest in they are appealing to the worst instincts of that their song supporters you know over and over again playing videos of Maxine Waters and of other uh, women of other black Democrats of other black women Democrats and that's you know to, to inflame their supporters and you know they had no defense for that was relevant to the charges against Trump uh, but they can rile up their supporters. That's what they're capable of doing. And that seems to be all that they're interested right now in doing as a party. There are individuals within the party. They're not, that you know, we can't generalize to every single Republican official, but as a party, that's sort of where they are. That's the most important thing in American politics right now is where that party goes. And, you know, impeachment was yet another example of, of what's going on with them. Yeah, um, I'm teaching a course on the presidency that's been meeting during most of the hearings this week. So I've seen a lot less um, than I would have liked to. But um, all up on Jonathan's point, you know, my students on Thursday were like, so that opening seemed really bad. Can't Trump get better lawyers? And, you know, my I said, well, you know, the cynical take is if you are pretty sure you're going to be acquitted, you don't actually need great lawyers or a great defense. You just need someone to show up and uh, provide enough of a rationale that the folks who want to vote to acquit you can say they had grounds to acquit you. Um, and you know, this is you know, the third impeachment um, that we've all been through. Um, it turns out that it's not about the two thirds to convict, it's about the one third to acquit. And you know, I, I, yeah, we were talking about this in class again yesterday and you know, it seems like the strategy is not can it's just can you get to 35 Can you get to 34 or 35 senators who will vote to acquit you? And if you do that, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you did. It doesn't matter what you said. It doesn't matter how good the um, uh, prosecution is. It doesn't matter how good or how dismal your defense is. Um, as long as you've got those votes in your pocket, the, the I, I don't want to use the words the fix is in, but the, the cake is baked. And, and in that in that capacity, you both are sort of laying out the the inevitability inevitability of what we think is going to happen ultimately in the Senate with regard to the final vote, and therefore the acquittal for the second time of President Trump in an impeachment proceeding. But we've just had two proceeding two impeachment proceedings in the course of. 12 months, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of novel. Um, and so I'm asking you as both scholars of the presidency and of contemporary politics, what do we make of the impeachment process um, as a means to hold the president responsible for his actions in office as per Federalist 70, shall we say, um, and Hamilton's ideas? And what do we make of, you know, sort of the impact that these double impeachments have on the American populace? The one thing that I'd be careful with, um, if you put aside sort of the Republican Party as a whole and, and get back to Donald Trump in particular, you know, yeah, he's gonna almost certainly survive this one to the extent that it matters. I mean, he'll still be eligible to run for president unless he winds up, you know, in jail, which is still a, a serious possibility. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say it doesn't matter that he gets impeached and, and gets, I, I don't think he got away with very much of anything. He lost the election. Um, he was unpopular throughout his presidency in, in large part because he constantly 
you know, breaks laws and he constantly breaks, violates his oath of office. Um, you know, we don't see that with other presidents, even in these polarized, partisan polarization times, we don't see presidents, you know, spend their entire term of office over 50% disapproval. Um, yeah, I think that part of the reason he has lousy lawyers is because he knows he doesn't need any better ones. But a lot of it is very personal to him. He's alienated everybody around him. Nobody can work with him. He's asking his lawyers to lie for him. And most lawyers won't do that. And the lawyers today avoided that by basically coming up with three video montages and playing them over and over and over again. Um, he, uh, you know, he also, of course, is famous for stiffing people who he owes money to. <laughs> so, you know, um, and, and he does suffer consequences. He's the only president in the history of the United States to have a same party senator vote to uh, convict him and remove him from office. That happened last year. It looks like we're probably going to have somewhere between four to six, maybe four to eight senators from his own party um, vote to convict him this time. So, you know, he had 10 members of the House from his own party vote to impeach him. Not, you know, as was the case, you know, in, in uh, Clinton's time, um, you know, Clinton had a few Democrats who voted to impeach him. They were the most moderate members or the most conservative, really, members of the Democratic caucus at the time. But, you know, um, Representative Cheney from Wyoming is not moderate. Um, <laughs> and she was, a, you know, the lead of the Republicans voting to um, impeach him. So there really are consequences from, from it. And I think that it's just hard to put it in terms of what it means about the presidency. It means that Donald Trump was really, really bad at presidenting. He didn't have any clue what he was doing. He didn't take the job seriously. He didn't try to do the job. And, you know, presumably even most of the Republicans who are on sort of the Trumpy side of the party would not be that bad at presidenting. Jonathan, let me ask you a follow-up, uh, putting together what you said earlier about parties and the Republican Party, and that really going forward, the issue is Trumpism, not Trump, and the effect that that will have in the party. I mean, is Georgia the consequence for the Republicans? Should this be a warning? Will that affect any of the senators voting that in fact they don't want to be associated with this part of the party? Or is the, is the fact that we have primaries and that in the primary being such a Trumpy candidate might actually help you win, even if you lose in the general, a problem for the Republican party, but yet individual candidates will be drawn like moths to that, to that fire. Yeah, I, it, in terms of how this is all sort of reinforcing for the Republicans, absolutely, the, the people who want to do, be Republican members of Congress um, you know, we can look at some of the very um, uh, uncongressional <laughs> new members of the House, um, you know, are going to be, that, that can win primaries, um, are not going to be the most, uh, you know, talented legislators out there. They're not going to be the most responsible citizens out there. And so, that you know, I think you know, you, you've got sort of three parts of the party. You've got some people who uh, are, are standing up and, and saying, no, we shouldn't be like this. 
that's a small group. You've got some people um, who are enthusiastically in favor of being like this. You have a whole bunch in the middle who are sort of okay with it, you know, and don't want to risk. And, and they're, they are, you know, one of the things I like to say is all politicians are paranoid. The question is what they're paranoid about. Members, Republican members of the House are paranoid about their primaries. No question about that. Most of them are not in great danger. We don't actually have evidence that Donald Trump can wave a magic wand and defeat um, Republican members of Congress in primaries. He's tried. He sometimes has been successful. But most of the times that, that he was successful, there were also other circumstances that got those people in trouble in the first place. And one of the things that Trump, especially in his first couple of years, was pretty good at was jumping on the right bandwagon in terms of primaries and general elections. Um, he, was a, he was good at endorsing people who were going to win and avoiding endorsements people who were going to lose and then taking credit. That's, that's a skill. That, that I, you know, presidents should do stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, you know, so uh, I, there seem to be a lot of Republicans who wish he, could, he would magically go away, Ted Cruz would magically go away, um, you know, Jim Jordan would magically go away, but they aren't willing to do anything about it. And, uh, you know, that's where we are. Chris, would you yeah. like to follow up on that? Yeah, and that gets to this this thing that's been bedeviling the Republican Party for five years now. Um, they want to get, get rid of him, but they won't do anything to get rid of him. It's like, I want to lose weight, but I won't change my diet and I won't exercise, but I really would like to have a 34-inch waist. Um, and it is just one of the oddest things I've ever seen, um, especially given everything, you know, Jonathan ran through, you know, how unpopular Trump was, how he was bad at the job, how he cost them the trifecta at the end of his term that Republicans had lost the house, the Senate and the white house. And this is the guy that they're still carrying water for. You know, this is not some beloved figure who left the white house after two successful terms with a 65% approval rating. Like I get why Republicans in the 1990s loved Ronald Reagan. This is just, this is as if Democrats in 1981 were still you know, carrying water for Jimmy Carter. If Jimmy Carter had tried to incite an insurrection instead of getting the hostages out of Iran. Um, and it's just this, this bizarre, like sort of like, it's tough to put into words how strange this is because they could have done something about it in 2015, in 2016. They could have done something about it in 2020 with the first impeachment. They could do something right now with this impeachment. Instead, you know, you're hearing Republican senators say things like, oh, well, those, 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 uh, process, the uh, House manager's presentations were very, very damning. He can't run for president now. Really? Why not? Like, it's like... Right, we've seen the power of videotape over Donald Trump in 2016. It doesn't have any. So it's it's just just weird. And it also feels like, you know, there's the part as someone who observes politics, there's a part of your brain that's paying attention to this very normal launch of the Biden administration. And then over here, we've got the the you know, just the last Trump administration freak show happening. Um, and I say, I say that that sounds like I'm making light. It's not, I mean, that was a, like the six was horrible. Um, but it's also just this demented, like, you know, spectacle where you've got these, you know, terrible defense lawyers giving terrible defense presentations and and Republican senators who want to vote to a quit saying, I found that very persuasive. Really? 
Are you thick? Were you dropped on the head? Like, it's just, I, I don't get it. I've never gotten it. I saw Trump in 2014 on his maiden foray to New Hampshire as a not quite candidate and thought this was one of the least impressive, least informed people I've ever seen. So I'm really bad at judging this sort of thing. But but Chris, you're 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 in the thick of it because you are in New Hampshire and and you're you know, you see yeah. every single candidate who comes through. You see them up close and personal. You hear them give their, you know, sort of initial stump speeches, maybe mm-hmm. their refined stump speeches. Um, and in terms of, you know, sort of that particular process, you say that, you know, you saw Trump not impressed mm-hmm. and yet he won the nomination yeah. um over some more impressive candidates and then he you know and then he went on to win the general election and then we've all sort of observed him <laughs> um mm-hmm. up close and personally uh and so i was wondering from your perspective of somebody who sees the nominees um can you give us a little bit of perspective on you know sort of what you saw in terms of that evolution also sure you mean in terms of trump um, yeah. yeah, Trump didn't have to evolve. Um, usually the normal process is, you know, you're a politician, you come to, you have presidential ambitions, you come to some national notice, um, and you start, you know, discovering, oh, I'm going to visit Iowa, I'm going to visit New Hampshire, I'm going to visit South Carolina. Uh, and you do small things like, you know, Jay Inslee was up here a little over two years ago. Um, and, oh, he, he just wanted to meet with an American government class at St. A's. And then, you know, we just wanted to go over to UNH and hang out with their college Dems for, for a little while. Um, and, you know, and you have to do that because nobody knows who you are. If you're not, like, really deeply plugged into politics, um, you're at the airport, Jay Inslee gets off the plane, you don't, you don't know who he is. And I'm not trying to pick on Jay Inslee. By all accounts, he's a fine public servant. Um, Donald Trump was probably the most famous person ever to run for president since I would say Eisenhower. And he wasn't famous even for anything he'd done. He was just sort of famous for who he was. Um, You know, in the, in the Trump book I did, you know, I didn't do it exhaustively. It probably deserves its own book. I should probably write that then, except then I'd have to spend another like two years thinking about Donald Trump every day. Um, But, you know, it's just the arc of his, like from like when he first became known as a public figure in the 1970s. His family was planning that. Um, It was not just spontaneously the New York Times decided to write a profile of him and say he looked like Robert Redford. Um, You know, that was launched. That was cultivated. And then he spent years building that image and um, threatening to run for president. And he'd come out with the art of the deal. And then he'd manage himself in the tabloids because, you know, best sex I've ever had is a better headline than Trump bankruptcy. And then you had all the cameos, um, like where he would show up on The Fresh Prince, and he was in this terrible Bo Derek movie called Ghosts Can't Do It. Um, he he showed up on this you know cheap syndicated Canadian science fiction show called Nightman once. It is just the most surreal thing. It's on the Roku channel. Just just go look it up. Um, and then he had The Apprentice. Um, but the weird thing is, you know, he was ever present. He was always in the news, but he wasn't in the news in a way that po- folks who write about politics notice, right? The Apprentice was this goofy broadcast TV reality game show. Nobody really paid attention to it. Or you saw a clip on Talk Soup. But if you're somebody who covers politics for the Post or the New York Times or something, 
by the time The Apprentice was on, you were much more interested in The Wire. You were watching The Sopranos. You were watching Mad Men or Breaking Bad. And The Apprentice was just this thing. And we didn't realize that that was being beamed into TVs all over America. And people saying, oh, my God, look at this decisive businessman. Look at this, this leader of men who can just, you know, instantly decide who to fire. And it's always the right choice. And yeah, so he didn't have to reinvent himself. People didn't want to see who he was. They didn't want to get a sense of, you know, the way it is when Cory Booker comes up here or Larry Hogan comes up. It's like, so what, you know, what's this person really like? Uh, they knew who he was, what he was like, or they knew, they thought they knew what he was like. They, it was seeing someone who was already very familiar. And that sort of inverted the entire, you know, small state primary experience. He didn't have to have house parties. He didn't have to have meet and greets. He held rallies. He did a very small number of sort of normal candidate things. But for the most part, he was speaking to large groups of people and he was doing TV hits. And that was his campaign. And none of the other Republicans could figure out how to run against that, in part because there were so many of them. Nobody followed Scott Walker's advice when he got out in 2015 and said, hey, we need to unite behind somebody else or else Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. What does this all tell us about the primary system? So does the primary system produce Trump? Because though he never had a majority of Republican voters, he was able to run against a bunch of other Republicans who split different um, pockets of the Republican ticket such that he emerged. Or is the primary system give us Joe Biden? So in in, in fact, a candidate came mm-hmm. out that that people could agree on and that could ultimately beat Donald Trump. So that's a successful primary for the Democratic Party. And as as the Republicans think about going into primaries for the presidency and also for this this coming Senate, is there something broken about the primary system? Or is it just that Trump was an anomaly? No, I think what's broken is the Republicans. Um, you know, a you know, if you look at nope. what happened with the Democrats in in 2020, um, you know, they wound up getting behind a universal, universally known, uh, generally liked figure who'd been through a bunch of national campaigns, didn't have major scandals attached to him. Um, you know, you know, it, you tell me a party nominates a popular former vice president, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and that happened in part because the other candidates decided they preferred Biden to Bernie. And after South Carolina, got out in a big public way and drove a lot of support to him. Republicans couldn't do that with Trump. They could not settle on an alternative. Um, even, um, you know, at the end, you still had Kasich and Cruz each insisting that they could beat both of the other candidates and then doing bizarre things like, OK, the governor of Ohio is going to go focus on Oregon and the senator from Texas is going to fo- go focus on Indiana. Um, and talk about basketball rings. Um, and it's just, it, you know, normal parties don't do that. Um, and the Republicans haven't figured out, I don't think, what to do. They're really hoping, I think, that Trump was an anomaly. But they're, who knows? I mean, it doesn't seem beyond the realm of possibility that in, in four years we'll be sitting here talking about how the pillow guy um managed to get elected. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> the main problem here, the, 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 the sort of thing that allows any of this to happen is, is a dysfunctional Republican Party. And, you know, it, it's less so the candidates, but then, then what... Well, the candidates to some extent, but party actors generally, you know, um, Republicans, if you look back at what happened in 2016, one of the key things that happens is they're coming to Iowa and they know that Trump is a problem. They know that uh, Ted Cruz is a viable, it has a lot of support, but is hated by everybody else in the party. So, you know, then the conservative Christian groups get together and what do they do they decide to endorse Cruz. they could have they had seven or eight different choices they could have endorsed um they could have endorsed walker before he got out they could have endorsed marco rubio they could have endorsed um the guy from louisiana who's a name i'm not i'm hitting right now bobby jindal there we go um you know there, there were a bunch of mike huckabee was running you know he's not exactly he wasn't catching fire but he hadn't caught fire eight years before that they could have gone with him again people within the party more or less were okay with him but people really hated ted cruz um so they picked ted cruz (laughs) Uh, next you know that turns out to be enough for cruz to um win in iowa knocking out a whole bunch of those other people um you know and and but but doesn't finish off trump and doesn't and then cruz himself gets a lot of party opposition in, the, in New Hampshire and going forward, which doesn't help the party come together either. So, you know, there, there are all these, you know, ways in which the part, Republican Party is just not functioning like normal parties are supposed to. Um, and it, the, the problem is that the way that the nomination process works, when it works, is that all these party actors, thousands of people around the country have to come to some kind of agreement about a candidate without having any real, um, without having any hierarchical way of doing that, without having very many well-arranged ways of doing that. And they're capable of it. We saw, you know, what happened when they all suddenly pushed for Biden. That worked. When they all uh, agreed on Hillary Clinton, four years before that, that worked. Um, And when Republicans did it in the past for McCain or for uh, George W. Bush, that worked too. But it's tough. Um, It's tough to do. The system is not well-designed to make that happen, in part because the parties are so non-hierarchical. They're so spread out. They're so, um, you know, there are they're not organized in any kind of way and they're not, they have to, they're fighting out who's going to be more important than who, you know, which groups are going to be important, which uh, functions of the party are going to be important. Is it going to be formal party organizations? Is it going to be uh, party aligned media that's going to be important? And th- those things all get fought out during the primary, during the nomination process at the same time that they all have to come together and come up with a solution. And, you know, if you have within that a whole lot of people who say, eh, 
Let's let's support Ted Cruz. We don't care if everybody else hates him. We don't care if, we're, if it means we probably won't get our way. We just want to do that. Um, you know, that makes it that much harder. Um, and then I have all kinds of other reasons why Trump won, but I'll leave those for later. <laughs> no, and let's get to them. But, but let, let me push back on both of you. Mm-hmm. I, I, not that I disagree, but let me do it anyway. I think this is not a dysfunctional GOP because look at how successful this dysfunctional GOP has done. They have completely rebuilt the judiciary in a remarkably system, systematic way that is very, very difficult to reverse. No matter who retires from the Supreme Court or the federal bench, that is now locked down. Uh, it is clear that they made gains in the House rather than losses. The Democrats did not push forward. There was no blue wave in, in the House of Representatives. In the Senate, yes, they lost those two seats in Georgia that they might not have if they hadn't behaved so dysfunctionally. So you could look at that and say that that was from their dysfunction. But as you look at the seats that are up in 2022, you know, are they really in such bad shape with their dysfunctional dog whistle politics, or have they, in de- depending how you define it, done quite well? I mean, I guess I look at that and I, I think it's not that that's not true, but imagine what a normal Republican president would have done. Um, you know, I mean, you tell me you got a big tax cut, you tell me you got a bunch of conservative judges, um, and I'm not underselling the importance of that at all, but, you know, imagine that you had had somebody who had been able to take the pandemic seriously and get reelected. And then we'd be looking at four more years of those judicial appointments, as opposed to Democrats saying, okay, uh, Stephen, it's time. It is time. Um, and we're seeing all these, you know, early Clinton and Carter appointees taking senior status and that sort of thing. Um, That said, you know, I mean, Republicans did do better down ticket than they were expected to do in a lot of cases. So I wouldn't dismiss that out of hand. Um, But I don't know. Um, I think this is one of those things, you know, you've got did the pandemic, different parties' responses to the pandemic in terms of campaigning make a difference. You know, if um, that race in Iowa that was decided by six votes, I mean, was that, you know, if Democrats had been knocking on doors, would that have gone the other way? Or the one in upstate New York that just got settled by, I want to say, 108 votes, but I might be thinking of lost. Um, you, You know, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I just... It does not seem like it's a party that's in a good place right now. Like, yeah, I think they do win the House next time. You know, I mean, I can't imagine Kevin McCarthy. Like, yeah, I'm sure he wants to be speaker, but I think he also doesn't want to be speaker with this caucus. Jonathan? Um, Yeah, I, I think that you can one of the lessons that we get out of all this is that the connection between dysfunctional party and electoral results is perhaps not as strong a connection as we might want it to be. Um, the electoral results wind up working sort of based back to the fundamentals in a large, uh, to a large extent. So, you know, if you get, if, if we get a Biden recession in year four, Republicans are going to win. 
um, no matter how crazy or whatever they've been in the meantime. But, uh, you know, over four years of uh, the Trump presidency and two years of, of unified um, control, they got very little to show for it. Yes, they got judges. You, you get that. Um, and they got a tax cut. And outside of that, you know, supposedly one of their big goals was healthcare. They didn't do anything on healthcare. They did a whole bunch of little administrative things which are getting overturned now. You know, I guess I, the stuff that they did on climate, if you take that as a, as a real sort of thoughtful position that we should do nothing about climate, they hit the brakes for four years, but that's all getting overturned right away anyway. If you, if you think that, well, most Republicans actually do think that climate is a, of some importance and that we should do something, they're not even remotely close to having any kind of program. On you know, immigration, one of their big issues, we shouldn't, you know, that, that we should do something about immigration. They are not remotely close to doing anything that's any serious. They, you know, they rebuilt fencing into a thing that they're going to call a wall, but looks more like not a wall at all. And, and that's their big accomplishment. They didn't do very much of that. So, you know, that's four years of, of the presidency that from, from a policy standpoint is basically just wasted except for the tax cut and except for judges. Um, and, and that is very much connected, not just to Trump's personal incompetence, but very much to the general failure of the Republican Party to have any clue what it's doing right now. Um, and, and, and so, uh, you know, we can talk about the extent to which Trump's particular problems probably did enough to make him lose re-election, but I think that that's not the first place to look for where the effects are of Republican dysfunction. And, and that was how you started out in, in terms of response to the question about impeachment is that you know, the GOP is in a dysfunctional place. And, um, and as, as Chris also said, you don't need to think about the two thirds to convict, you need to think about the one third to acquit. Um, and so I guess my question as a political scientist also is like, well, so <laughs> what are we going to do? What happens to the GOP? Because in a certain sense, I can't pinpoint necessarily where their ideas are. Um, and I think that's one of the problems. I think that's one of the basis of the dysfunctionality, um, except for Trumpism, but I'm not always sure what Trumpism stands for. Anybody yeah, want to I respond? Think, sure, yeah, I, I think, you know, a big part of Trumpism is it's, it's an attitude, it's a style, it's about ticking off the right people, it's about owning the libs, um, as we often see it referred to on the Twitters, um, but yeah, it's really tough to turn that into a coherent policy platform. Um, and I think, you know, you know, we heard today an awful lot about cancel culture. My guess is that nobody actually cares about cancel culture. Um, it's really, and, and you know, think about it. Like I, I have a hard time thinking of many people who have actually been canceled. Um, you know, unless you're in jail, you know, you usually claw your way back into something, um, yeah, you know, um, you know whether it, you know Al Franken has a podcast and Mark Halpern's on Newsmax and that sort of thing. Um, I don't like. I don't know that there are that many people who want to run for president who can actually, you know, 
deploy that style of grievance politics as successfully as Trump did. You know, I still don't understand how this this billionaire managed to do that. But I really don't see, you know, Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton doing it as successfully as he did. Um, so I, I don't know. I think there's got to be something more. I, I guess I don't agree with that. I could definitely see. I mean, I think Trump underperformed um, because I think it turned out that, you know, Hillary Clinton was uh, gave away two, three, four percentage points that, you know, and we could talk about whether that was a mistake by the Democrats or whether it was something that they had to live with or whatever. But um, I, I think Trump underperformed in 2016. I think he underperformed in 2020. He underperformed, you know, as president, his, his approval ratings were just awful during the first three years where the economy was good, wasn't as good as he bragged about, but it was, you know, we had um, something very much like peace and something, you know, reasonably like prosperity. And he couldn't crack 50%, he couldn't crack 45% approval. Um, and it's hard to know about the politics of 2020. It's, you know, we don't have a whole lot of comparisons to go with, but it does seem that a lot of world leaders and a lot of governors got serious rally effects from the pandemic. And Trump got about two points or so, and then, then fell from that. Um, so I, I, I do think that I, I imagine, I, I don't you know, know if Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton or whoever, they don't seem very presidential to me, but you get presidential from winning primaries and, and winning the nomination. And if things are going bad in the country, you know, by uh, 2024, I, I could see any of those people using the same basic um, campaign because I don't think it matters very much. I, I don't think, I mean, I think it matters in all kinds of ways, the consequences of the political system, but as far as voting, I, I don't think it, it, and electoral results, I don't know that it matters so much. Um, I mean, those guys were able to win Senate primaries. They can't, you know, they may look like dweebs to some people, but they were able to capture votes of Republicans. And if you capture votes, or if you can capture votes of Republicans, you can win the nomination. If you can win the nomination, you can win the election. So I guess I would work, I guess getting back to Lily's question, how do you sort of, what do you do from there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I, it seems to me one of the big problems and one of the big sources of dysfunction is the strength, uh, and Dave Hopkins talks about this a lot, the strength of Republican aligned media within the party and the fact that Republican aligned media does not have um, the proper electoral incentives. They're going to do great with um, their party out of office. And they don't, you know, deliberately tank, but they don't have that sort of desperation to win that normal party actors are supposed to have. Um, and, you know, so, so Republican-aligned media, the Republican conservative marketplace, um, there's a lot of Republicans who are going to, who, who can get rich being out of office. Uh, and that's, you know, what we want. And, and it, it creates these incentives to be, you know, uh, uh, I'm spacing her name, the, the woman from uh, Georgia. 
Marjorie Taylor. Uh, oh, yes. That's it. You know, she's going to make a lot of money, most likely. Um, she, and she, you know, famously says after she gets kicked off her committees, I don't need my committees. Well, she doesn't. She wants to be on Fox. That's her goal. She wants to be on conservative talk radio. She'll have a book come out eventually. She's going to make a lot of money. Um, and, you know, if that's where your incentives are for politicians, that politicians don't care about getting reelected because there's more money to be made elsewhere. And the reason that you get elected to Congress is to get on, to get into the conservative marketplace so that you can cash in on it. You know, you would hope that that would, and, and, and at the same time, because of partisan polarization and to some extent gerrymandering and other things, it doesn't have huge electoral effects for the party. That's a problem. <laughs> and I, yeah. I have no idea how to get around it. Other than, and, and one of the things that it does is it, uh, that, that other people talk about a lot more than I do, but I think it's probably true, is that it also incentivizes the party to turn against democracy generally because you're losing all these elections and um, you know, you're, you're finding it difficult to compete with the group that you have now. And both, anyway, for whatever reason, they're, they're turning against democracy and that's, that's a bad thing. <laughs> So it's it's striking to me. You mentioned that you know you can you know lose elections and then get rich by becoming a, a celebrity in the conservative marketplace. There's always been a path to get rich by by go by holding elective office. It's you serve your term and then you lose or stop running and then you go work at a law firm or a lobbying firm or a consulting shop and you can make lots of money and never have to like you know work an exceptionally long day again for the rest of your life and do just fine. Um, this seems to be feeding something different though where that's like the goal as opposed to the fallback. It's like, well, I'll cast this vote. And if it doesn't work, I'll, you know, get a job lobbying for the, the, the chain drugstore association or something like that. Um, so that's probably in a dynamic worth thinking about, right? The goal is not just that you become fame, become rich, but that you become famous by losing an election, but being in good enough with the, um, conservative marketplace that you get, you know, like the the Mike Huckabee weekend show on Fox that he had for a while, and and that sort of stuff. Um, and it's, it's it's a really different dynamic than we've seen before. Yeah, I, I think that the lobbying incentive turned out not to be all that bad because um, at least you had to take the job seriously enough that people would hire you. I mean, you know, is anybody going to hire somebody who came in and and I mean. Those people are probably radioactive to serious companies who want yeah. to affect policy, um, and they know nothing about policy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You take somebody like I don't know Tom Downey, I'm thinking of from way back, um, you know, or you take you know the typical member of, of the House who serves on a committee, puts in their time, doesn't have to learn a lot, uh, gets to know and and be friendly with fellow members of Congress, um, you know, sure, but. But you need to usually win two or three terms at least to have that work, um, you know. Yeah. And and so so that sort of worked. I mean, that was always a, an iffy incentive, but I don't think it was nearly as as, um, as as much of a problem as as this other one. So it it seems to me like we've spent the last four years uh, worried and about the future of the Republic, about institutions, about the rule of law, about norm breaking. And, and, but actually the two of you seem quite uh, confident that in fact, 
the institutions, norms are pretty much okay. That Trump actually didn't really have much of an effect. And, and last week we were talking with um, uh, Mina Bose and Dan Ponder, and they too really felt that Biden's normalcy, Biden's success at bringing in a cabinet ready to work, hiring more people than have ever been hired previously this early in the term to get things going, actually showed the resiliency of the president. So are, are you both feeling that way, that these four years really didn't ha- turn the United States uh, in any sort of important way against its democratic norms? So no, no harm was, was done because of ineptitude and not, in fact, putting everything together that might have been put together to do more serious damage? Go ahead. Okay. Um, no, I'm, I think we got lucky. Um, I think we were very lucky that the election last fall came down to five or six states and not one. I think if it had all come down to, you know, say that long count in Pennsylvania, um, I think we could have had a very different outcome. I think, you know, January 6th, uh, even setting aside the insurrection could have gone very differently. Um, you, know, you could have seen all sorts of shenanigans in terms of, oh, well, should we exclude these votes? And and that sort of thing. Um, I also think, um, you know, one of the things Trump did was really, you know, expose this this vein in American politics of, of you know, anti-majoritarian sentiment of, of the idea that, well, what, can we structure things to still retain a lot of power even when we don't win? Um, you know, it, it was this remarkable thing that very few people talked about all last year. Trump did not care about winning the popular vote. The Trump campaign just did not even have that at, they weren't even giving lip service to the idea that they were going to win the popular vote. Um, I don't remember that. Like, I think you have to go back to the Dixiecrats in 1948 to find a campaign that was like, well, we're not trying to win. We're just trying to, you know, force it into the house and get Truman to back off civil rights. Um, and I think that's, you know, going to be really tough to come back from. I think especially, um, if you think that the Electoral College, because of, you know, all of those um, free electoral vote states out west and that sort of thing, um, somewhat favors Republicans, you know, if I'm a Republican running in 2024, I think I'm probably thinking so the goal really is only 270. Um, and again, I think that's not a great place to be. I think for a long time, it's not the campaigns didn't care about um, getting 270 electoral votes. Of course they did, but they figured the best way to do that was to win lots and lots and lots of votes and that it would, the math would work itself out. Um, so I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, a reaction in a lot of states where, uh, Republican legislatures are trying to roll back voting expansions or limit voting, uh, in Pennsylvania, the legislature is basically trying to blow up the state Supreme Court um, in terms of how it's chosen and, and, and all the rest of that in a way that would um, pretty durably advantage Republicans. Um, I'm, I'm from Pennsylvania, so um, you know, I can say this, you know, that there's something to that idea that that state consists of Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Alabama. And if you structure the state Supreme Court to basically mostly represent districts from the Alabama part of Pennsylvania, that's what the Supreme Court's going to look like. So, you know, there just seems to be all of this, you know, movement afoot 
um, not just at the federal level, but at the state level, uh, to try to find ways to limit the franchise, to make voting harder, to make winning elections harder for Democrats, to make registration harder generally. Um, and that's not at all a you know great place to be as a country, to have a party that has basically decided to double down on um, uh, minoritarian politics is, you know, that that's playing with fire. Yeah, I, I agree with that entirely. And, you know, the, the fact that one of our two major parties, that's where they are. Um, and, and, you know, there's also, we can, we can sort of tease that out a little bit, that there's some of it that has been where the Republican Party's been for a good 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And there, there are roots to, that go back way back to McCarthyism and through Nixon. But, you know, the, the idea that, oh, we're not doing well with black voters, let's keep black voters from voting. That's not new. That's not new to Trump. The idea that, hey, we are losing elections, maybe we should throw out the state's votes and have the legislature do it, that goes back to George W. Bush in 2000, um, as does well, the idea that, hey, let's disrupt the counting of the votes with, you know, a, a contrived riot. Um, so, so some of this stuff is not new to Trump. One of the problems with Trump is that, you know, whereas you think that, that George W. Bush was willing to use these forces in the party, Donald Trump is a consumer of that rhetoric and, and I think really basically knows what he read, what he sees on Fox News and what he hears from, you know, friends of his who are getting their information from who knows what, you know, random, you know, email chain or whatever. Um, and so whereas usually the elected officials tamp down the extremes, he's revving up the extremes and that's you know, that's basically how you wind up with January 6th. Um, but even with Trump out of the way, you know, some of this stuff is now the party's basic, uh, you know, identity. So we had in Arizona, if you, if you did Pennsylvania, where you're from, I'll do Arizona where I'm from. Um, Arizona got a bill introduced to say, well, we don't really have to have popular votes for president anymore in our state. We'll just have the state legislature do it. Um, and I think that it's not, I don't think that the bill, you know, it's one bill, it's one state legislator, but the idea that um, these ideas, which were crazy, you know, extreme in 2000, are now basically the Republican Party's governing agenda, because they don't have a governing agenda for jobs or, you know, climate or health care. They have a governing agenda, which is basically how can we manipulate the next elections in our favor? Um, and, you know, it's an anti-democratic strain. So in terms of, am I optimistic? I, I'm not because I think that because there's a, because there don't seem to be major electoral offense, effects of having this kind of party, um, it means that the Republicans are eventually gonna be back in, in power. They are unable to do as much when they have, win office as a competent functional party could do, um, but they still can, can get a lot done and, you know, they're capable of putting people like Trump in office who do not feel, do not respond to normal political constraints, um, and you know that that even somebody like Ted Cruz or or uh, you know some of the other 
politicians would do, but like we could have the pillow guy, we could have anybody, and who knows what they'd do if, if they were in office. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's certainly long term. I, I don't think that the presidency or the government is broken, but but the party, the Republican Party, is broken, and they're always a threat to win elections and break the the system further. Um, so we're we're almost. Yeah, no, we're almost at the end here, and we haven't even touched the Democratic Party and their capacity for dysfunction going forward. That will have to be a separate show, because I I don't think we can trust the Democratic Party (laughs) not to, um, in fact, blow up their own primaries and uh, and not take advantage of dysfunction. However, I'd like to give each one of you a chance for closing thoughts on anything we've discussed or something we didn't discuss that is just uh, on the front front of your brain and think is important in this particular moment. Chris, you want to go first? Um, wow. Okay. That, that, that's a very broad brief. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it just struck me today. Hey, um, that's the advantage what, of not yes. having 30 seconds on television. Yes, exactly. Say anything you want here on New Books um, and Political Science. Yeah, that's great. Um, and I'm vamping. Um, so it struck me, you know, from what little I heard of today's um, uh, defense presentation that, you know, the last when Bill Clinton was impeached, you know, the question was, what's the definition of is? And today depends on what your definition of insurrection is. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I, I said we got lucky with the election. I think we also got extraordinarily lucky on January 6th. Um, it was, you know, just a you know, really horrible, really surreal day. But because I have a political scientist brain, I kept viewing it through the framework of um, a piece I teach in my media and politics class about how actually big crisis events all have the same structure of coverage. First, something happens and nobody knows anything. And then it starts to settle down and they start repeating what seems to be happening. And then by like hour six, they've got tyrons and a special graphic and all of it. Um, And it was just really strange to watch that playing out in real time. And if you go back, if you watch footage from 9-11, if you watch footage of Challenger, if you watch footage of um, uh, Ronald Reagan's shooting in 1981, it's the exact same pattern every time. And if I had more time um, and, and the technology, I'd be tempted to make some sort of a supercut of, you know, crisis coverage and how it all sort of comes together. Thanks, Chris. Jonathan? I'll I'll talk a little bit about the Democratic Party because I'm I'm pleasantly surprised with the Democratic Party. I, I you know um, they seem to have their act together. Are they you know are they, do they have issues and problems? Of course, but um, you know as I watch two impeachments now and members of the House going over there, and these are really impressed people. A lot of whom you know, unlike the somewhat. Uh, superannuated leadership of the House, and I'm a big Nancy Pelosi fan, but you know, we have all these young, uh, or at least young as far as their terms of service, members of the House. We have a lot of very good senators, Democratic senators, and then we have, you know, the Biden administration, which has really, um, you know, built on the successes and learned from the failures. Uh, at least it looks like so far, we're three weeks in. But of the um, Clinton and Obama administrations, and you know, we have this wonderfully diverse uh, new cabinet and um, White House. Um, we have majority women 
um, in the White House. Uh, we have majority women of the current uh, nominees for um, the people he's nominated so far for executive branch uh, that are Senate confirmable. Um, you know, nothing like that has ever happened before. And, you know, I'm pretty impressed with, with um, the, that it's a real party. It, I don't think it's because of Joe Biden. I think it's because of that's where the Democratic Party is and that's who won the nomination. Um, that coalition is what won the nomination. And I think that they are, you know, unusually well prepared to govern. You know, I probably would have said the same thing about, you know, Kennedy in, in, in 61. And then, you know, we had Vietnam. So who knows? <laughs> uh, um, but this it's a pretty good group right now. And, and there's all kinds of um, positive possibilities that we don't really talk about as much and probably should. Chris, you wanted to add something? Yeah, yeah. Um, just in terms of the diversity of this cabinet and how much it represents the modern Democratic Party, um, all through the nominating process in the election last year, I kept coming back to this scene in The Wire where Tommy Carcetti, a candidate for a white candidate for mayor in Baltimore, a majority black city, um, who is definitely not Martin O'Malley, um, uh, goes to a meeting with black ministers and says, look, I, you can get something from me that you can't get from the other black candidates for mayor which is that I desperately need you. And I think Biden, in a way that past Democratic presidents maybe hasn't, um, is really trying to tend to the party coalition, is not trying to establish himself as separate from the congressional party or separate from Washington insiders, the way you got um, to an extent with Obama, to an extent with Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter. Uh, Biden just does not really care about that. And he's like, look, I got here because of the Democratic Party and I want all parts of the Democratic Party be represented in my administration. Um, and I think that's led him, that, that's part of it. And the other is that um, those past administrations, I think we're doing a lot of work to get more diverse folks into positions where maybe not in this White House, but in the next one, they'd be ready to hold you know, cabinet positions and have the experience and have the credentials. And so it's been sort of like a long game that I think is really paying off now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with you with that very astute sort of analysis of how Biden sees himself in terms of the party leader and the, the coalition leader, also because he is an insider. He really is much more of an insider than, of course, the more recent Democratic presidents have been. Um, so I would like to thank our guests today, Jonathan Bernstein of Bloomberg and Chris Galdieri of um, St. Anselm College and my co-host, uh, Susan LaBelle. Um, and this is the Do Books in Political Science uh, podcast, our special edition postscript.